You know, we've been going through this book, Book of Jonah, and uh, this is the very last in the series. This is part six, I believe. It's a short book of four chapters, and it has taken us this time to come to the very end of the book. Now, if you and I were writing the book of Jonah, there wouldn't be a chapter four when you come to think about it. I mean, three quarters of a million people repented. What else is there? It should put a full stop at the end of chapter 3. Or, you might like to add one more verse to that chapter and say, call it chapter 3, verse 11. There isn't a chapter 3, verse 11 in your Bible. But if you were to write this book, you might like to have a verse 11 that says something like, And Jonah sailed back to his homeland, rejoicing. And that would be a perfect end to that book. But that's not to be. In this last chapter, there is a chapter 4 that God has ordained. We see a turnaround. Now, it's like one of those movies. I'm not sure whether you've watched one of those movies that uh, instead of everything turning out right in the end, there's a sudden twist. All of a sudden, you, you expect it to come to an end. You look at your watch, it's time to end, it's time to get out of the theatre. And then the twist takes on a new turn and the plot seems to be falling apart. And you're left dangling without resolution. Don't you hate movies like that? I do. You do, I'm sure. This book is like one of those movies, those modern movies. It's rather cryptic, enigmatic. Perhaps it is enigmatic because Jonah is an enigma. His life is a bag of contradictions. His life is full of contradictions. So instead of ending with 3.11, which there isn't such a verse, there is a 4.1, which tells us that Jonah was exceedingly angry. Remember last week we saw that huge revival in Nineveh? It was no small feat, really. It was something like the revival of New York City, something like the revival of Auckland, or Wellington. Now, Nineveh was the greatest city in the then known world. Assyria was its old name. Uh, scholars have, scholars have uh, located it to the modern-day Iraq. That's where it is. And this entire city, the size of Auckland, perhaps bigger, including the, la the larger metropolitan of Auckland and all its suburbs, they get down to their knees. And yet Jonah... <laughs> seriously, was quite prepared to slit his own wrist. This is indeed very, very strange, really. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, whom I have read quite a lot for this series, in his commentary on Jonah, he says this. Sinclair Ferguson says, I have met men who would give their right arm just to see what Jonah saw in Nineveh. You know, what a privilege it is to be an instrument of God to bring an entire city down on its knees, that would be sweeter than life, says Ferguson. And I know as a, as a pastor, I get, I get all blown away when one sinner repents. This is three and a half million people repenting. Wouldn't he be blown away? Every preacher would shout with joy to have a ministry like that. But Jonah responds in a way that is very opposite to the way God responds. God saw Nineveh's repentance and God relented from his anger 
from his judgment. But Jonah was very angry when Nineveh repented. God was slow to anger. Jonah was quick on his trigger. You know, when, 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 uh, when God said to anger, uh, when God said to Jonah, you, do you do well to be angry? Jonah shouted back, do I do well to be angry? I do well to be angry, well enough to want to die. That's chapter 4, verse 9. So he's all tied up in knots, this man. He's in a huff. He's pouting. He's, he's sulking. He's got this death wish. By the way, this is not the first prophet in the Old Testament to have had a death wish. You remember Elijah sitting under the juniper tree or under the broom tree. He wanted to die. And you remember John the Baptist in prison, pining away. He sent a contingent to Jesus to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He was in deep despair. As for Jonah, he quit. He left the city. He abandoned his mission. He should have stayed on. There's a lot of follow-up work to do in that city. Imagine three and a half million people. He's got a lot of discipleship work to do. But, but he left the city. Instead, he goes out to the city. He builds this flimsy makeshift shelter to shield him from the scorching sun. Now, one commentator rightly asked, were there no shelters in Nineveh? No home for a prophet who has brought such great blessing? Of course there were, but he wasn't interested at all. So he becomes a spectator. Verse 5 says, He sat in the shade to see what would become of the city. You know, in some sense, he's still hoping that judgment will come to Nineveh. He's still hoping that the fireworks will come and uh, fall upon these gentle dogs. And uh, if the fireworks should come, what better place to watch the fireworks than to be camping outside the city wall? He'll have a full view. He's got a ringside seat, the best view, to watch fire and brimstone falling upon this city. So this man is still very much desirable that Nineveh fall, even though they are now Christians overnight. He has a ministry in the city, but he has become a spectator instead. Unfortunately, this is the posture that many Christians take. When things offend them, they isolate themselves and they become spectators. They're there, but they're really not there. Sinclair Ferguson calls this a spiritual infantile regression. He says many of us respond like Jonah. When we've been offended, we go into a kind of an infantile regression. We choose to remain on the fringe. We couldn't care much anymore from that point onwards. No matter what they do, we're not going to be a part of that anymore. They may be around. They may still come. But by their body language, you know they'd rather be out of this place. Did you know that our Lord himself must have experienced this? Think about it. He gave us a picture of what offense-taking played out in his time. He paints a picture of some children playing with other children. And he says this, We played the flute for you, but you do not dance. We sang a dirge, but you do not mourn. You know, the children were saying to one another, Since you won't do it my way, 
I'm not going to take part in whatever you do from this point on. Uh, you know, th this is so true of, of human people. Even mature Christians adopt a posture like that. It's very sad. So it's very humbling to have to admit that you and I, when we are offended, quite often we respond with a kind of an infantile regression and we take offense. And Jonah is in this place, such a place, and that's why he prays for a kind of a spiritual euthanasia or euthanasia. He says, it is better for me to die than to live, verse 3. So, so he makes this little flimsy makeshift shelter. It's not going to... It's not going to give him an adequate shelter, really. So it's not enough. He still feels the scorching heat on his head. And God becomes very kind to him. God sprouts a plant. Quite suddenly, that plant grows up quite quickly. Now, there's a lot of debate. If you read commentaries, Bible commentaries on the book of Jonah, you will discover that there's a lot of commentaries, a lot of discussion on the exact nature of this plant. Some scholars believe that it's a broad vine-like leaf called the palma crista, the palm of Christ. It's a kind of a palm whose leaves spread out very broad so that it might shelter you. Avi, the authorized version, calls it a gourd. The NIV calls it a vine. But I like the footnote in the ESV. ESV has a footnote. And in, in the footnote it says, Kikayon. That's a castor oil plant. Now, you don't need to know Hebrew to see how apt this description is, really. Why? Because if there is anything this rebellious prophet needs, it's a good dose of castor oil seed. Or castor oil. Castor oil, a good dose of castor oil. Now, uh, you younger folks, you might not be laughing at this illustration because castor oil perhaps means nothing to you. But in our time growing up, uh, yeah, when you're not well, your mother gives you a tablespoon, not a teaspoon, but a tablespoon of castor oil, and it doesn't go down well. You remember that? So this prophet needs that. And strange, this plant is called the kikayon, or the castor oil plant. But he's very happy about it, verse 6. You know something? This is the very first time he's happy <laughs> in this entire book. He's never happy before. But early the next morning, God sends a worm to destroy the plant. When Jonah wakes, it is so warm, he must have thought that he had slept in. He rubs his eyes, and he senses that something is not quite right. He looks to the left, he looks to the right. The plant, the plant, where's my plant, he says. Well, it, lays in the, it lay in the sand beside him, wilted, dead as dead can be. And just at about the same time when he saw the plant has died, God sends a scorching east wind. Now this is called a Sirocco. I remember growing up at a time when a lot of car makers would call the model of their car the Sirocco. Rightly named, I tell you, it's a good name. A Sirocco is the eastern wind that blows from the eastern flank of the desert, blasting as it comes when the Sirocco wind blows. Birds would hide in the thickest bush. Fowls would pant with open mouth and drooping wings. Herds of cattle will, will take shelter under those craggy rocks. And the laborers would retire from the field. They would bolt their doors and their windows because the sand would come biting and flying in. It's the wind with great sweltering heat. 
And Jonah bore the full, full front of it, the full brunt of it. He bore it and he becomes very angry. And again, he wants to die. You know, the word anger occurs six times in this one chapter alone. The question is this, what's really wrong with Jonah? And it's a question you want to ask too. And it's a question I want to ask. Could you guess what's wrong with Jonah? Just what's wrong with this man? If you were able to talk to him, let's say he's here right now, and we're able to talk to him. Let's imagine a conversation with Jonah. If I should begin, if I should say, Jonah, do you pray? He'll say, do I pray? This may sound fishy, but I've prayed in the most strangest place. You're supposed to laugh at this point. This may sound fishy, he says, but I've prayed in the most strange places you would ever seen. Or if we should ask him, have you experienced the deeper life, Jonah? He'll say, have I experienced the deeper life? I've, not. I've gone deeper than anyone has ever been. I've gone to the depths of depths. I've died and I've been raised again. Maybe you should ask him, what about your preaching? Is your preaching that bad that you're so discouraged? He'll say, no, how's my preaching? When I preach, entire cities come to the Lord. Did you notice something here? At this point in our conversation with Jonah, did you notice something? This man seems to be doing everything right. Everything his hands touch turns to gold. He's called twice. I know I'm a called man. I tested the Lord eight years before I relented and go into ministry. I fought him for eight years, but he called me just once. That one time he called me, I fought back for eight years. I didn't want to be a minister. But this man is called twice, remember? And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He's called twice. And his theology is orthodox. He believed in the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, chapter 1, verse 9. He believed that it was God who raised him from the dead, chapter 2, verse 6. But you, O Lord, brought my life up from the pit. Remember that? He believed that idolatry is wrong. Remember that? He says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God. Chapter 2 verse 8. He believed that salvation comes from the Lord. Chapter 2 verse 9. He believed in a God who is gracious and slow to anger. Chapter 4 verse 2. So you can't fault him on his theology. His knowledge of God is impeccable. And yet for all that, Deep in his heart, Jonah is at odds with God. What is wrong is not what is in his head. It's perfect. What's in his head is perfect. What is wrong is what is in his heart. And this is what you and I must be very afraid of. We can have all the right beliefs. And I have met young men who could spit out orthodox reform theology just like that. Very young people, before they are 25, they're very sharp in their theology. A lot of knowledge, but no wisdom, no grace, no sweetness. Very sad to spend 45 minutes sitting down, having coffee with such a person. It is very judgmental. It is very caustic. 
and you come away from having coffee with such a person with a bad taste in your mouth. They've got all the mental understanding right, but no spiritual discernment, no anointing of the Holy Spirit, and therefore no sweetness. It's all rigid, all right, but dead right. Jonah is something like that. Jonah has good theology, but bad attitude. God has compassion for the lost. Jonah has no compassion for the lost. God is merciful. Jonah is merciless. Remember, he stays outside the city wall to watch for the fireworks. What would the fireworks mean? It would mean children blown to pieces because of the wrath of God. He was waiting for that. He wanted to enjoy that. He's merciless. God is slow to anger. Jonah is quick to anger. God knows great kindness. This man knows no kindness. God relents when wicked people repent Jonah's heart remains stony and he does not relent his heart is out of sync with the heart of God now some of you have read A.W. Tozer if you have never read Tozer you have robbed yourself get a stack of Tozer books this winter and read right through very easy to read although very painful and almost every book that Tozer writes boils down to this one same message and that is this you can know about God and not know God isn't that, isn't that scary? you can know about God and not know God the more we know about God about His grace about His nature about His will the more we should know God really Jonah got straight A's in his theology exam but he flunk in ministry because he didn't know God if Jonah obeyed he only obeyed outwardly but inside there is great reluctance great resistance he obeyed only because he was cornered that's the only reason and yet Ephesians chapter 6 verse 6 says when you do the will of God do it from your heart it is always the heart that God is looking for is it any wonder why the Bible says guard your heart with all diligence because out of it comes the issues of life if God wants to work on you he wants to work on your heart. Of all things that God would have wanted for you, did you know that God wants one thing from you? He says, My son, give me your heart. Proverbs 23, 26. So this man has got all the externals, but he hasn't got the heart. It is Jonah's heart that God wants to work on. But exactly what's the matter, what's this matter of the heart that, that, that Jonah has to learn? Did you know that it is quite fascinating to know that the book of Jonah has four lessons and he has learned three lessons so far about God. In chapter 1, he learns about the persistence of God, that no matter how far you run, God's going to chase after you. Second lesson he learns is from chapter 2, that God pardons in the stomach of the fish 
he asked for forgiveness and God pardoned him. So in chapter 1, he learns God's persistence. In chapter 2, he learns of God's pardon. In chapter 3, he learns of God's power that if we relent and be used as a prophet, great cities will fall beneath the feet of Jesus. But there is one more thing that God wants Jonah to learn and that is found in chapter 4, verse 10. God's pity. God's mercy. This man has no mercy. And God wants him to learn his mercy. But he doesn't get it. Jonah is rather undiscerning as a prophet of God. He's not seeing what he should be seeing. How many times God has to rouse him up when he was awakened by the Phoenician sailor, or rather the captain of the boat, he should have realized that God is chasing after him. Didn't realize that. When the word of God came to him a second time, he should have realized that God is really wanting him to do his purpose. How many times God tries to get through to Jonah? Four times the word appointed is used. God appointed a fish, chapter 1 verse 17. God appointed a plant, chapter 4 verse 6. God appointed a worm, chapter 4 verse 7. God appointed the wind, chapter 4 verse 6. If he had eyes to see, he would have seen that God appointed certain things in their lives, in his life rather. Are you not seeing God's appointments in your life? If God appointed an illness to fall on one of your loved ones, say three years ago you received some bad news about someone whom you loved very much, it was something appointed by God, did you not learn from that? What about right now? Right now, is God appointing something in your life? Is He appointing in your life a grief, a disappointment? Someone has very well said that God's, that our disappointments are God's appointments. So God appoints certain things, certain incidences, certain issues to come into your life that you might learn from it. But this man learns nothing. So many times God's trying to get through the Jonah but he just couldn't see. And by the time we get to the end of the book, this man was shouting at God. And it is at this point that God tries to rouse his conscience, now listen to this, for the very last time. God's going to rouse his conscience, but for the very last time, no more after this. And God says to him, you take pity on this plant that you didn't even germinate. You didn't even grow it. You didn't even put any seed on the ground. And, you take, and yet you take great pity on this plant. I have, what, this plant comes in the night and dies the next morning. And you pity this plant. I have three and a half million or, or three quarters of a million people in, the sea, in Nineveh. And you get nothing for them. This plant has no life eternal. Those people in Nineveh, they're going to live forever in one place or another, either in heaven or in hell, and you get nothing for that. You know, verse 11 has an intriguing thing in it. It says, Should I not pity Nineveh, this great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? What's this? In the city of Nineveh, there are 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from the left. 
that expression could mean two things. It could mean that in the city of Nineveh, there are 120,000 children. The children do not know their right hand from their left hand. And 120,000 children are perishing. Or that could be an expression of someone who has the inability to make moral judgment. You know, there are people so wicked, they do not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they do not know good from evil. They do not know good from bad. They do not know right from wrong. People can be so morally confused, they can't even follow the simple, basic moral instruction, you shall not kill. They don't understand that. For normal people, that's knowing their right from their left. It's easy. But sadly, this most simplest of moral law has become indiscernible to those who are morally confused. So God is looking down at this morally confused nation and he shows pity and mercy on it. Now this is what Jonah misses out totally. Nineveh may be cruel, but God's mercy is upon this nation. God wants to save this nation. Remember God tells us that if only there were just ten righteous people in Sodom, he would spare the city. And here there, are, there is a teeming three and a quarter million, or three quarters of a million people in Nineveh. You know, God does not look upon the city of Nineveh as one huge indistinguishable mass of people. He knows each one by name. He knows the number of hairs on each one of their heads. So Jonah has absolutely no idea that God is a God of pity, that God is a God of compassion, that God welcomes people who turned away from him but now turns back to him. And I'm going to spend the next few minutes just talking about God's mercy because this is ultimately what Jonah does not understand. God's mercy is an expression of his love. It is the way he shows his love towards us. God looks at the state we are in and he pities us. God's mercy is revealed in his compassion. When God shows compassion, it is because he is merciful to you. He can be touched and he can be moved to compassion and to mercy. And God does not just show us mercy. God's mercy is tender. It is gentle. And God's mercy is eternal. It never ends. It is inexhaustible. Remember, his mercy endures forever. And Jeremiah says his mercy never comes to an end. You will never find a single verse in the Bible that says that God rejoices in his punishment. God never rejoices in his punishment. But in so many places, God tells us that he delights to show us mercy. You know, if you still need proof that God is merciful to you, just take note of the fact that you are still breathing and you are still alive. That is enough proof that God is merciful. You know, people who fight God every day do not know that they taste God's mercy every day. How do we know that? Because Lamentations 3.22 says, It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. So the fact that we are not consumed shows that God is merciful. If God is not merciful, you and I wouldn't have woken up from our sleep last night. What protects us from God's swift justice is His mercy. It is God's mercy that delays His execution of justice. 
Now you need to respond to God's mercy. How? By turning to Him for mercy. But there is another way you can respond to God's mercy and that is the way that Jonah didn't. You and I can respond to God's mercy by showing mercy to those who need our mercy. If God gives you a fresh start every morning, shouldn't you give a fresh start to those who have hurt you, grieved you, and continues to hurt you through their insensitivities? We should. If you are not forgiving that person, you don't have a heart of mercy, one. But two, you're putting your life on hold. Because that person doesn't even know that you're still holding on. He's gone on to live his life and you're held back. So if God gives us a fresh start every morning, we need to give other people a fresh start. And this is what Jonah didn't have. Didn't like what to him were Gentile dogs. And that is what he didn't have. Mercy. Did Jonah learn this? Do we know? There isn't a verse 12, as, as I've said. This book comes in an end like a cliffhanger. He's confronted, but there's nothing. Did you notice that the entire book of Jonah ends with a strange mark? Look at your Bible. Not a full stop. Yes. It's a question mark. Did Jonah reply God? Wouldn't have a clue. Wouldn't have a clue. Did he come seeing things the way God sees? Don't know. Did he come to see that his was a heart of stone? Merciless heart? Don't know. Did he go back to his hometown satisfied that it made peace with God? Did Jonah come to repent of his lack of compassion? But there's something we do know about Jonah, and this comes from tradition. So take it with a pinch of salt. But it comes from a very strong tradition, and that is Jonah returned to Israel, and he was buried after he died in a village called Geth Hepher. It's a village that is very, very close to Nazareth. And then 850 years later, a little boy was playing around the hill where Jonah was buried. And the name of that boy, Jesus of Nazareth. Because they both came from the same place. So Jesus could well have been playing over the mound where Jonah was buried. But we do know something. If he turned around, if he really turned around, we do know it. How do we know it? How can I speak with a certain measure of confidence that Jonah did turn around in the end, even though the book is leaves us, you know, like a in in suspense? Well I know because I happen to know that it was Jonah who wrote this book. It was not uncommon in Old Testament practice to write in third person. So this autobiographical information points to Jonah as the author. If Jonah didn't write this book, no one could have written this book. Why? Because who knows? Who knows what would have gone on in Jonah through that whole time that he was experiencing what he was experiencing. No one could have. No one could have written the experiences that Jonah experienced had Jonah not written it. 
Nobody would have known the stuff that he went through if he hadn't wrote it, written it. Jonah is the author of this book and he wrote it in a way that intentionally draws a contrast between God's mercy and his merciless heart. He did not hide anything from us. He exposes his disobedience, he exposes his defiance, he exposes his pride, he exposes his racism, he exposes his idolatry, he lets it all out, warts and all. Why? Because he is now a healed man. He is freed. Free people have very little to hide. They are not ashamed of anything. It has all been dealt with. You know, he has been purified. He's been healed. He's been restored. And even though it makes him look really bad to write all this stuff about himself, he wrote it. And true enough, ever since then, he's always had a bad press. People would call him the reluctant prophet. People would call him the runaway prophet. All sorts of names have been given to him, but he couldn't care less because he'd been purified. He'd been healed. Oh, how I love to be like Jonah, where I have nothing to hide, unafraid, transparent, free. I like so much to be like Jonah, to be able to paint a black picture of my life. It's okay. I don't have to prove anything anymore. He has found it. Remember, it was him who says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God. He's now found grace. He's now freed. And because he's freed, he's humble, he's contented, and he's joyful. And he does not mind projecting that image about himself. So Jonah came to himself. He realized his selfishness, his racism, his idolatry, and he repented. And he went on to finish the work of God. On the walls, or rather on one of the walls in the Sistine Chapel in Rome, Michelangelo. Michelangelo has this painting called The Prophets and the Apostles. And in that painting, Michelangelo tried to capture all the faces of all the prophets and all the apostles. Now, how hard it is. How hard is it to capture all the, uh, the portraiture of all, every single prophet and every single apostle. And one art critic has said that of all the faces that Michelangelo painted, None has a more radiant countenance than Jonah. Somehow Michelangelo believed that Jonah did accept God's merciful pity and went on to become a preacher of grace. But there's one thing I want to close this sermon with. Now listen very carefully. And it is this. Did you not come to see did you not see that Jonah comes very close to not getting it completely? Jonah comes so close to not getting it completely. We see that to the very end, he was still angry. Right to the end, he was still not seeing the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion that God wants him to be. In the last few chapters of chapter 4 were the very last words God ever spoken to this man. After this, the lips of God fell dumb where Jonah is concerned. He speaks to Jonah no more. 
you get there's no chapter 5 there is no chapter 5 as we have said there isn't a chapter 5 so you don't you don't get a new verse that says and the word of God came to Jonah a third time there isn't such a verse listen to this we simply do not know which time God speaks to us will be the very last time I know I'm speaking to an intergenerational group some of you are older some of you are very young indeed but I still want to say this you do not know that the last time that God spoke to you was not going to be the very last time that he spoke to you it could well be the very very last time because you could go out from here and you, you could actually meet your death from here this time that you hear God speak could really be the very last time you hear God speak we cannot assume none of us can assume that we have more chances to hear God if you sense God speaking to you now I would say heed obey right now sitting on your chair be converted sitting on your chair you can't assume that today this time isn't going to be the last time that God's going to speak to you this is why Jesus never uses the word tomorrow he always says today today when you hear my voice do not harden your heart there are moments when God speaks in a very unusual way and that is the moment you should turn around it happened to me many many years ago I still remember the place it was a morning chapel service at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the chapel mid-morning we have chapel and the hymn was sung and that hymn ended with this line if ever I love you my Jesus it is now if ever I love you my Jesus it is now and, and that season of my life there was something lodged in my heart and I knew it and when I heard that last line that was a holy moment for me tears began streaming down ceaselessly from my eyes so much so that the bloke who was sitting next to me turned to me and said are you alright are you alright I was sobbing like a child and trying to sing at the same time because the verse, those verses mean so much to me and we were going to sing this as our closing song but the point I want to make is this we simply do not know which time God speaks will be the very last time Jonah comes so close to missing it out to not getting it so let's not not get it so if you're young or even if you're old let me say this if God has spoken to you today right now be converted on your seats right now turn to God and say Lord forgive me I repent of the stuff that I've been harboring in my heart in my mind I let them all go now I embrace you I repent of my sin be my savior if you have done that when the service is over I like you to come up to the front and talk to me I'll be somewhere there I'd like to pray for you so shall we pray now our father we thank you for the book of Jonah it is such a harrowing thought to know that he came so close to not getting it but he got it because we know from the words of Jesus Christ 
the words of Jesus were very commendable words about Jonah. So on that score alone, we know that he got it finally. But he came so close to not getting it. And Father, may we not be people who don't get it. May we be people who right now hear your voice and want to do something about it right now. Right here as we sit, we confess our sins, we repent of our selfishness and our waywardness and our depravity and our wickedness and our anger and our resentment and our unforgiving spirit and our spiteful attitude. We confess them all before you, Father. They are wicked. They are violent. So we ask for your forgiveness. Heal us. Father, to be like Jonah, so free that he could write bad things about himself. He didn't care because he's free. He's been freed. The shackles have fallen off and we want to be free people. We don't want anymore to live like shackled people who have no freedom, afraid and timid all the time. So Father, set us free, we pray. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So we bless you, Father, for speaking to us this day. Do not stop, but speak to us till we go to bed tonight. And help us to journal what you have spoken to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.